Good evening. I'm your host. And this is uncomfortable. I can remember, I've gravitated towards movies and stories of monsters, ghosts, aliens, and hellspawn demons. I've enjoyed the mad slasher movies of the 1980s. They were good for an occasional jump in your seat scare, but beyond that, they were just good fun. But demons, that's another story. I remember being eight years old and watching my cousin carrying a large crucifix that he took off his bedroom wall as he left the house to go see The Exorcist with his friends. Movies like The Exorcist, Conjuring, Sinister, and The Omen, those were the fuel of my nightmares. I didn't understand it until years later. I suppose being born and raised in a Catholic home added to the effectiveness of these movies. The idea that some unseen, unholy force could actually penetrate your being, change one's personality, or manipulate one's own demise was terrifying. Tonight's guest will hopefully shed some light on the subject of demons. What they are, where do they originate from, do they pose an actual threat to our physical reality, and most importantly, what do they want with us? Let's welcome Reverend Robert Duchesne of Paranormal Michigan Incorporated, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Hey, Robert. Thanks for being with us tonight. Oh, no problem. Before we get too far into it, why don't you tell the listeners about your group, Paranormal Michigan Incorporated, and where they can find you and your services online or on social media? Uh, probably the best way to find... Uh Paranormal Michigan would just be to go to paranormalmichigan.com. Uh, there we have um, all of our services listed, which includes um, our walking tours. We have bus tours that we offer, um, do paranormal investigations, and also help with uh, the darker hauntings, such as the demonic. Now, I assume uh, your tours and such, that all takes place in the Kalamazoo area, correct? We have tours in Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids currently, but we're expen- expanding into other cities uh, next year. We were hoping to this year, but obviously 2020 has not cooperated very well. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not been a great year for a whole lot of things. Yeah, we have, um, I think, four of them coming up in Grand Rapids. I, I might be uh, might have the date the number wrong, but I know we have three or four tours that are scheduled. Neat. Now you've also, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And I'm relatively sure that they're not sold out. So. Oh. All right. So on your, good. on your website, you also, uh, you've penned several books, correct? Yes. My wife and I have written a total of six books. Uh, five of them have been published. The other one is in its final stages of editing and will be out soon. Uh, we wrote the Honor History of Kalamazoo. Goes to Grand Rapids, Michigan's Haunted Nightlife, Paranormal Lansing, and 
the last paranormal uh, realm type book would be called Twisted Kalamazoo, which just talks about some of the darker things that happened in the history of Kalamazoo. Mm -hmm. And we wrote one other book called uh, One Silent Voice, a Jeannie Singleton story, which is about an unsolved murder from 1955 of an eight-year-old girl. Hmm. So, Robert, what got you interested in seeking out hauntings to begin with, and and how long have you been investigating? Like most people who I meet in the field, um, I ended up getting into paranormal research due to the fact that I grew up in a house that had been haunted. So I had been, I pretty much was terrified to go into my basement because of the spirits that I would see down there. And somehow that went from being terrified to being fascinated. And in 1993, my best friend, Bob Penny and I formed what at that time had been called the Kalamazoo ghost hunters club. How do you, how do you get past, how do you get from scared and terrified of seeing a spirit to getting past that and, and, and getting the courage to actually pursue and go after to see them again. I think it was more to do with my age. Um, we had a bedroom in our basement that my stepsister had been in. And when she moved, uh, when my mom and her father separated, I wanted that room because it was the most private room in the house. And in order to have that room, I had to get over my fear of the basement. <laughs> and Good reason. <laughs> so I think it was more or less out of really wanting to have more privacy. And then I realized that there really wasn't anything too scary about the spirits, despite the fact that I continued to see them. No. So, did, did other family members see them as well? Or do you think that you were, or were you just the one that was more sensitive to, other people had seen them, um, mainly my friends. Um, my sister had experienced something upstairs um, where she'd had uh, paranormal activity um, bothering her. Do you and, think? Do you think it's a thing that's related to youth? Do you think as as we get older and and do we do we become more closed off to some things? Are we are we more open when we're when we're younger to to these kind of things? Do you think? Uh, that does seem to be the case. Uh, I do find that people uh, do report seeing ghosts a lot when they were children, and then they no longer see it when they grow up. Um, there are several theories on why that is. One of them is that when you're a child, you still have that the skull hasn't completely fused, so you're you have more uh, opening for like energies to get into your brain. That's one theory. Um, others are that it's that it could be simply a situation where you have now chosen to ignore the fact that the spirits are there. Mm-hmm. Kind of the same concept. I always point out every time I give a, a a lecture on the paranormal. I always point out to everyone that the every time you have your eyes open, you can see your nose, but we have now learned to ignore it. So, mm-hmm. despite the fact that your nose is constantly in your line of sight. Until someone points it out, you don't typically see that. And I think it might be the same kind of thing with the ghosts that people just learn to ignore the paranormal activity because they feel that they're more than likely imagined it. Hmm. Interesting. I remember reading an article years ago, and, and in that it, it stated that, the, I believe it was the author's feeling that 
poltergeist activity seemed to be tied to young young females more than anything possibly as something to do with hormones and becoming becoming a woman and that those energies and everything that were going into her changing body and everything were were things that were helping promote or to uh, give life to these poltergeists have you ever heard anything like that Yep, that is actually the most common theory on poltergeist activity is that it is actually PK energy and that it has a lot to do with emotions. And you are correct that the majority of poltergeist cases are tied to uh, young girls, uh, pubescent girls, typically more than anything else. So and that, that is the main theory. And that wouldn't really be uh, an entity as much as it would be energy that's being put off by the, the individual themselves, correct? That's correct. And a lot of times people mistake that type of thing for being paranormal activity is one of the main, <laughs> excuse yeah. me, one of the main theories that people have. That's interesting. Not like we have enough things to deal with when we're growing up to end up having something like that taking place. Yeah, uh, I've had a few cases where there were teenage girls that were um, having hauntings and it, and it did seem to be tied to their age. Um, and they just clear up on their own typically as the girl gets older. Now on your website, and I think you touched on this briefly, it's, it states that you guys specialize in malevolent hauntings and that in some situations, I'm sorry, that in some situations you were called on as an experienced Catholic demonologist And that's really what I want to get into tonight. That is my area of expertise now. Um, I I have been your your typical paranormal investigator for most of my career. And then after having experienced something demonic in my own life, I ended up getting uh, into demonology and working with the church. I got to ask, what's that that process like? Can, can you talk about it, first of all? <laughs> and if you can, um, what is it? I was in, I was initially trained by a gentleman named Kenneth Deal, who was who wrote a book called The Catholic Demonologist Handbook. And um, he worked closely with John Zathis. And so initially I was trained by a lay minister in the basics of demonology. And then... I had to take a class on religious counseling so that I would be able to talk to people about their potential paranormal activity, uh, demonology, demon issues, whatever might be going on with them. And for the most part, um, the job's not nearly as exciting as it sounds. Um, typically, um, I just go meet with the client, listen to what they have to say, gauge whether it seems that they're being truthful and I'll offer them um, some blessed metals and do like a minor, um, it's called the minor rite of exorcism, which is more or less uh, holy water and the long version of the prayer to St. Michael. So how often do you come across a situation that that needs that type of attention 
and and I guess the second part of that question is: is this stuff that you're all you're you're getting through your investigations, or is is the church in some way sending people to you? Or I have had people uh, have been referred by the church, uh, but most more often than not, it's people who contact us through our website, and then if it's determined that there's something that's beyond my level, if they have to have like a full exorcism, that is something that has to be done by a Catholic priest. So I would then refer the case to the priest. But um, majority of the cases we actually are able to take care of with just using the minor rite of exorcism and the house blessing. So your decision to study the demonology was, was based on uh, more of a need than a curiosity obviously. And yes. So I'm, I imagine there's got to be a pretty powerful vetting process when you're talking to these people. How would you say, could you say, put a percentage to how many, you know, is it one out of five or one out of 10 that actually are, are experiencing something that requires your um. study of demonology? I have really only come across anything that I would have labeled as demonic outside of my own life with four clients. Uh, and we do hundreds of cases. So it's pretty rare for it to actually be something that is demonic. A lot of times it's unfortunately people who have watched too many paranormal shows and there is a certain man in the uh, paranormal field who is pretty much convinced everybody that everything that happens is demonic. And um, so a lot of times, one of the first questions I ask is, what paranormal shows do you watch? <laughs> so, un- so unfortunately, that is part of my vetting process there, too, is just knowing <laughs> how into the paranormal they are. Yeah. You know, we, we had a conversation on the phone a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about doing this show. And uh, when I first talked to you, you, you told me about, being able to perform the minor rite of exorcism. Have you ever, have you ever been in witness to the, the major rite of exorcism uh, with a, a Catholic priest? I have actually witnessed one, one exorcism uh, with the priest out at Kalamazoo. And it was, it, it was pretty out there, honestly. Uh, kind so? of what you see on, Kind of what you see in, in the movies that you mentioned in your introduction, like like the you know the, the Omen and, and all those type of movies, mm-hmm. that type of activity really does happen during the exorcism, where things where like objects were banging around in the room, um, person started speaking in Latin, despite the fact that they did not speak the language. So it was surprisingly. Different and similar to what you see in the movies. What what does that do to you when you see that? I mean, it, again, back to the conversation we had on the phone a couple of weeks ago. I asked you what the most, the scariest thing that you ever had happen. And I fully expected you to come back with something from this end of things. And you told me it was, it was based on an EVP that you recorded. Yes. How, how do you sit and watch? I mean, because, I mean, there's physically there's nothing there that you can see, correct? That's correct. 
do are they are they capable of uh, contorting uh, the the person's figure or their face, um, making them look different, making them you know obviously you said they were speaking in tongues, uh, something that they weren't, or speaking in Latin, they had no idea how to speak Latin. How do you? How does how does one sit and witness that? Where, where do you pull your strength from? I mean, obviously you're a man of God, but still, it's got to be scary as hell to sit there and watch that. I think honestly, I don't process it in a way that would allow it to scare me. I look at it more as I have a job as a minister to help these people, so I think that might be where I get that disconnect to where it isn't as scary as it could be. Plus, as I said, I've only actually witnessed the one full exorcism. So what I'm typically dealing with is people who are having um, what's called uh, the oppression stage of, uh, of demonic, which is when the demon has pretty much attached itself to you and it goes through, and one of the first things that happens in a demonic case is it really starts tearing your life apart. It will, it will ruin your finances. Your finances, it can ruin your relationship. Pretty much just takes whatever weakness you have and makes it worse. So if you happen to be a recovering alcoholic, almost guaranteed you're going to start drinking again. If you have a mental problem, it's going to be aggravated and it will cause more issues with that. So I think with me, reason it doesn't really scare me so much is I am, my, my mind is always on how can I help this person? What can I do to help them get everything better for them? I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism, but I think the fascination was probably more there for me than the fear. Can I ask the the priest that was performing it? What was his posture like? What was his uh, his presence in that room? Did he seem unnerved by it, or is this something that is relatively common enough that uh, he really just seemed like he was being very firm and commanding, and and you can't really show any. Beer. I mean, if, if the priest were to have a whole, a lot of showing of fear, that would possibly make it so that he would not be as effective in uh, doing the exorcism. Mm-hmm. So from what I have seen, the, it was just very, pretty much it was just very forceful and ordering the uh, spirit out, uh, doing prayers holy water and, and that type of thing. You know, I've seen, I've seen documentaries. Um, I wish I could remember the name of the one I watched not too awful long ago. It was, it was really well done and it was more of a, it was almost a, uh, kind of like a day in the life of type, uh, production about a, about a priest who had been, I believe it was over in Italy, Italy or France. It, it didn't really have a, a happy outcome at the end of it. It was um, it was just refusing to go. And uh, it had started to follow him and was leaving signs 
at uh, at other churches in in different different towns that he had gone to and to him he he felt that he was being reached out to by this entity and 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 given signs that he just wasn't going to go is there any is there any any precedence of that i mean is it is it usually uh, a priest comes in does a full exorcism and and boom they're gone or or do these things tend to to fight and hold on there are plenty of cases where the the priest has an extremely hard time trying to get the to get the demon to leave and there have been reported cases where the demon has actually attached itself to the priest like you were like you were mentioning so pretty much would depend on how powerful of a demon you're dealing with there are there's like a hierarchy some of them are going to be low level and then you could have some very very powerful ones that would be probably impossible for you to have enough faith to be able to to do it to handle on your own okay with with getting to that what are demons are they were they human spirits at one point are they are they some sort of a, a physical being are they something completely unto themselves completely different where do they come from i mean if we're to believe that and i was born and raised catholic i'm not practicing now i'm i'm still spiritual i believe in god i don't know what that is but i believe in it if that makes any sense that um, makes perfect sense. I, I have I, actually I studied say, many religions throughout the years, so I understand how that can work. You know, I, I say prayers at night, but I don't know who I'm saying them to. I've never sat down and read the Bible, but I've been around um, born-again Christians who believe that every word of the Bible is the only thing that they can believe in. And I have a bit of a, a more um, science-based thinking I guess and to me who wrote the Bible was only able to um, relay information in in what was available to them as far as uh, technology and, and knowledge over 2,000 years ago you know if if we would have put a cell phone in front of one of those people that were writing the Bible they would have thought that was some kind of you know ungodly magic but yet here today, we have cell phones in everyone's pockets. We're using them tonight. So I don't disbelieve the Bible, but to me, timelines don't line up. Um, you know, I had, I remember, I think I was in seventh grade. I went to uh, Christ the King Catholic School uh, for part of seventh grade. And uh, we had to go to Mass a couple of times a week. And I remember coming back from Christmas vacation and the priest asked us all, you know, how was your vacation? Did you guys have fun? What'd you do? And I remember my parents took me to Chicago to, um, to the different museums and the planetarium. I remember telling him how neat it was to see the, uh, the large statues, bones that have been put back together of the dinosaurs. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he just kind of chuckled. And he said, no, those aren't real. And I said, what do you mean? He said, dinosaurs didn't exist. And I was like, but I just saw them. <laughs> you know what I mean? They take up like 30 feet in this museum. And he's like, that's all, that's all made up by man for, 
for whatever reason for you to believe that, but it, it ne- they never walked the earth. But when you study science, I mean, there had been a lot of people that were really fudging a lot of bones <laughs> for something that never existed. So I kind of that's kind of where I started having my fall away from the Catholic Church, and and I always thought that was kind of like their per- perspective of it. Come to find out, that really dinosaurs and stuff doesn't really have anything to do with the Catholic Church. They don't. I don't really see anything that they have a stand on that one way or another. But it just back to the, back, yeah, I'm, back to I, I am I am spiritual, and I believe in a greater a greater a bigger greater thing than than any of this. But I'm not sure what that is. I guess is what I'm saying. So for. Yeah, I, I know plenty of people that would that would pretty much not be able to explain their faith the same way you just did, but would more or less have the same thoughts where they, they believe in God, but they're not sure how to define God, just that there is a higher power. And that. So, so I guess, I guess if, if you, in, in my mind, if you've got to believe in good, you've got to believe in 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 bad or evil as well you know you can't have plus without minus you can't have so to me that's what you know the idea of demons i mean what what are they were were they human at one time are they the main theory that i have heard on the origins from of of the demonic is that they are uh descended from the fallen angels when lucifer tried to take over and they they were flushed out of heaven and they were sent to earth. And when they were on earth, they pretty much raped and pillaged. And it's supposed to be the offspring of the fallen angels. Would that not be the Nephilim then? It would be similar. <laughs> you have the hierarchy of angels, so you'd also have the, you have hierarchies in the demonic uh, orders too. So... God created these and and basically gave them life when he he banished them from heaven. That's, well, that's what, um, how it was explained to me from Kenneth Steele um, and the priest that I worked with in Kalamazoo uh, pretty much went with the idea that it, that they are also the same thing, that they are descended from the fallen angels. And what's their purpose? Why, why, why do they try to wreak havoc on people? What, what is their, what's their organized process? I mean, why, why are they doing this? What's the, what's the end game for that? The whole idea is to pretty much be able to claim a soul for hell. They're, they're attempting to tear your faith apart to where you will turn, turn from God, essentially, making it so that you will not go to heaven. And as a result, that gives them another soul for hell. Um, so they're essentially just, as you were saying, you can't have good without evil. They're, they're doing the evil side of, you know, of, of nature there, I suppose. They're just trying to damn you. How are they, um, how are they referred to? Do they have names? I know I've read, in, in the past, I, um, 
probably one of the shows that has the guy in it that says everything's demonic that you don't want to say who it is, but I'll probably say it because I don't care. Uh, Ghost Adventures, Zach Baggins. You know, I, I really enjoyed that show for the first eight or ten years, and but recently everything seems to be pushing the portals to hell and and uh, it's a demonic entity and you know it, it, everything seems to be driven by the uh, the drama and the 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 looking for uh, better ratings i guess to keep the show going but you know everything everything they they investigate can be demons and like yeah. you said out of all of your investigations and you've been doing it for a long time you know not not many times do you come across something that is is that Right, and there are some people, and, and Zach Baggins is, is one of the ones that I was. I, I do ask people if they follow because people who are fans of, of Zach Baggins have a tendency to think everything is demonic. Yeah, and there a lot of the demons actually they do have names. You're not supposed to speak their names, but they they have names. And I'm not asking you to to speak their names, but what is the the idea behind not saying the name is that a is that an invitation that in itself? Uh, it's, you're just not supposed to say it. It's supposed to like by saying their name. Your the theory is that you can either attract them or kind of feed their their energy. Uh, but I think the main thing is by not you don't want to speak their name because it does more or less invite willingly or not what invites them to uh, come around you. Now, you know, there's God knows how many religions throughout the world. And so many of the religions are all based on a story that could be construed as being very similar to the Catholic belief or the Christian belief. I mean, there's, there's bits and pieces that seem like they've all come from the same story. And I've often said, you know, especially to one gentleman that I work with who's a born-again Christian. It's like when we were kids and we sat around and uh, I forget what the name of the, the game was where you had kids sitting in a circle and somebody would whisper in your ear. I think it was telephone? a tele- telephone game. And yep. then by the time you get around the circle, it was it was a different story. And, you know, who's to say that whatever event did truly happen and there were people from God knows where. And after they saw it, they all went off to their tribes and they went through deserts and they went through oceans and they ran out of, you know, their horse died and they had to turn over the story to somebody else. And then you make sure you get this back to our people. And then, you know, by time all these different factions of people got back the story to their groups of people, who's to say that it hadn't changed? And that's where the differing parts of religion it had come from to me that seems that seems more realistic than you know than all the hindu people being wrong for believing in the god that they believe or you know i mean i guess <laughs> if i if i was to say that only people that shouldn't be probably saved are are the ones that are um that follow the devil satan himself you know if you're if you're if your belief is in that Probably, you know, if if it's true that they all the occult stuff follows satanic, uh, there, there's many uh, 
cult religion, cult uh, religions out there. Um, uh, there's a lot. There's some nature cults and um, and that type of thing as well. But I, I would agree with you that the basis for most religions does seem to be um, pretty similar to the point that I think different parts of the story have been borrowed, retold, that type of thing. Like the story of Noah's Ark existed in Egyptian times. So we know that that was, uh, that was part of their belief. Um, there's plenty of things in the Bible even that have been borrowed from other cultures. So I would imagine that they're probably, just like you said, it, it's just the stories have been told over and over so many times that they're not exactly a hundred percent correct anymore. Yeah. And that's where you get some of these differences in the religions. But generally speaking, it seems like the majority of monotheistic religions more seem like they have a similar God to where I think that they actually probably all worship the same God by a different name. Yeah. Now, conversely, do you have, do you have any idea like these, these demons that we're not going to say their names, do you know, do they, do they tend to cross over? Do they show up possibly by a different name, but are still objectively the same demon in other religions recognized as the same entity? Um, there are other religions that have demonic figures that would more more than likely be the same thing that we have in Christianity, being a demonic figure. Um, throughout history, there's been two things that have been constant, and that's a belief in a god and a belief in vampires. So, I, and a I belief don't know. in vampires. Yep, it's pretty much universal. Interesting. So I, I tend to think that perhaps that belief in vampires may actually be may be referencing something demonic as well. Mm. So that's something I, one of my theories. Um, it's not. I don't think there's any religion out there that's going to tell you that that uh, vampires are demons. But in my mind, that's what I logically figure because they have universally existed along with religion. That's interesting. I don't know that I've ever heard that. And and by vampire, you're 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 talking about the what we know as a vampire. Maybe not. Yeah, the, there's a, there is a book. It was written by uh, not think of the name of the author offhand, of course, but it's called Actual Factual Dracula, and it goes through and it talks about the different beliefs in in vampires throughout history and the different cultures and, and they all had different weaknesses. Um, some of them couldn't cross water. Some of them uh, couldn't be around flames. Some had the weakness that they can't be in the daylight. There's some that can't be out at night. <laughs> so oh. throughout, throughout history, vampires have pretty much existed. And as I said, I, I tend to be, think that perhaps our our interpretation of what we call a vampire is some form of the demonic spirit. That's interesting. What was the name of that book again? I believe it was called Actual Factual Dracula. Okay. Uh, so got the, got the book in storage, but uh, <laughs> otherwise I... <laughs> but. Let, let's, let's take a look at uh, spirit boards, Ouija boards. 
you see him in all these shows. And, and you know, I watch these shows. I, I Like I said, I, I've been a fan of Ghost Adventures for uh, a big fan of it for the first five or six years, and I still watch it occasionally because it's entertaining now more than, than anything. But uh, I watched uh, Ghost Hunters with uh, Grant and Jason back when they started in the, on the Sci-Fi channel. Did you and I not have a conversation where you said something that you were actually offered uh, that show or or a similar show back in the day? Uh, yeah, we uh, my my friend Bob and I were actually offered uh, an opportunity to have the show that became Ghost Ghost Hunters, but we turned it down due to the fact that the contract specifically stated that until two years after the airing of the last episode, we could not discuss what evidence had been captured and what had been manufactured by the producers. Ah. So isn't that a shame? Yeah. That that just, I hate that. We just did not feel that it would be right to do a show if they were going to be doing manufactured evidence. Okay. But back to spirit boards, Ouija board. Is it just a silly parlor game? Or are, are they an actual tool for communicating with the other side? In every single case that has proven to be an actual demonic case, there has been the use of a Ouija board. In every single case that I've worked that had actual demonic presence. In really? Yes. There's no exception to that rule. Every single case. With um, the only... Real difference in that would be with my situation where my wife and I had to deal with the demonic. I believe that was actually from doing too much EVP work, which. Is that something you feel comfortable getting into or would you rather not? um, I'm, I'm fine. I've already, I've spoken about it uh, at uh, several paranormal conventions. Well, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Basically what it was is. Well, little backstory. Uh, I was mentioning the the fact with the you were asking about the, the spirit boards and the Ouija board that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much all that is doing is you are attempting to have direct communication with the spirit. You're offering them your body um, as a way to communicate. So you're supposed to be asking the spirits or whatever to communicate through you. In my honest opinion, doing EDP work is not much different because you are, at that time, when you're doing that, you are also directly communicating. Um, And I think it was due to the fact that I was an EDP specialist and after my best friend committed suicide, I lost my faith for a while. I think having been a minister who then lost his faith, and was somewhat obsessed with doing EVP work, that that was what opened up the opportunity for the mnemonic to attach itself to my wife and I. What ended up happening, the way that we found out something was going on, was we were doing an investigation of a church in, I believe it was in Ionia, Michigan. One of our investigators came out from uh, being in one of the classrooms there and he brought me 
a recording and he said, could you please listen to this and tell me if you hear what I hear and played it back. And it was very clear. There was a voice in, in the thing that said Nikki, which is my wife's nickname. Mm. And it was a very gruff voice. It was like, Nikki. So that was the first time we had that. Then it was another investigation, a different investigator brought a recorder and he brought me the recording that I listened to. And it had that exact same voice saying Nikki and that same guttural demonic sounding voice. A second time. Yes. We actually captured that voice on five different investigations. And as this was going on, my, my relationship with my wife, or that's my time was my uh, fiance, was getting it was getting worse. We were having a lot of relationship problems. Um, I had been a re- I had been a recovered alcoholic, and I went right back into the drinking. Finances fell apart. Um, things just kept getting worse and worse, and this voice just kept appearing in all of our recordings that said her name. And what finally made me realize what was going on was we were doing an investigation of a house, um, private residence. And I was the one watching the cameras while everyone else was up doing, they were doing an EVP session. And because of my work I do with the church, I'm no longer allowed to do EVP. It's considered to be divination by the church. So I'm, I'm not allowed to do it. So I just watched the t- I watched the video and was looking for any kind of activity that, that was going on. And at that point, I'd, I had started to look into uh, into other means for investigating. Uh, and this was before I realized what was going on, and I heard a loud noise. So I got up and I couldn't see team on the camera. So I went up the stairs to where I'd heard this noise at and I walked up stairs and I said, what was that? And they said, well, Bob just knocked something over. And I'm like, okay. And in the middle of a sentence, I mean, my wife was saying something to me and in the middle of the sentence, she just stopped and she goes, you can go downstairs now. You are not needed here. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was kind of kind of weird, but it was her team, and she of, technically was in charge. Out of character so, for her? Very out of character. And went back downstairs, and we finished the investigation. And when we re- reviewed the audio, there was a voice that said something similar to get rid of him that we picked up in the background audio. So right as she was talking, you could hear this voice in the EVP says, get rid of him. And she stopped mid sentence and said, you can go downstairs. You're not needed here. Mm. And then they had one other situation where we were doing EDP work. This was at a historic property in Portage, Michigan. And we we're um, up in you know, one of the bedrooms of this historic home. 
and we were doing the EVP session and uh, my wife asked the question, is there anything I can do for you? And we had a response that we caught on the um, audio recording that said, said, get rid of him again. Really? And I had asked later on in that same session, is there anything I can do for you? Anything we can do for you? And it said, go outside. And when I started looking into what could be causing this, that was when I really started doing my research on demonology and oppression and ended up having to work with uh, a priest to help us clear up the problem. And it was after having that priest help me, that's when I decided I was going to start studying demonology. Oh, wow. So, so, so Ouija boards, no, no, not a good thing to mess with. EVPs, I did not know, can be looked at the same way as a, as a opening for them. Right. Now, my formative years were in the 1980s. I was listening to the Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne and Kiss and, and all the hair bands and everything that were going along with it. Plus, I was listening to Black Sabbath and... You know, I wasn't dressing up all in black. I wasn't painting my fingernails black. I wasn't wearing black eye makeup or anything. I was a normal, well-adjusted teenage kid who liked listening to hard rock. But back then, the PMRC, I don't know if you, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 55. The PMRC was led by, led by uh, Tipper Gore, and they were uh, a group of parents that were out to make them label label albums as being uh, explicit and, you know, trying to get, get them taken off of the shelves if they had anything bad in them. And, um, it was, it was, it was a mess for a while. And I don't know, I think they succeeded in, in putting some kind of a label, but they were never able to actually pull it off. But I think they had to start providing, uh, albums with edited versions of songs so that you could buy either, Either or, you could either get it with all the words, or you could get it with the words that were. Uh, they had that explicit, uh, explicit warning that they had, that was put on. Uh, yeah, and I guess the, yeah, and I guess the whole thing, you know, kind of culminated in I think it was 1990. There were a couple of uh, teenagers that took their lives, and uh, not to not to minimize the tragicness of of them taking their lives, but. Tipper and her PRM at PMRC, they, they tried to put it on the music. I think they, what they weren't looking at was the mental health issues. At the end of the day, there was something more than just hard rock and heavy metal going on in those kids' lives that, right. uh, that caused them to take their lives. But, but there's, you know, this death metal nowadays and, uh, one band in particular, Behemoth, for example, they claim to use some lyrics that are, they say, is part of conjuring uh, demons. Whether it is or whether it's not, if you're listening to that because you think it is, is that is that not also a, a window or a doorway for for them to to get to you, access you, make you more vulnerable. If, if you are intentionally listening to lyrics that you believe are going to 
help conjure a demon, I, w- I would think that that would definitely be somebody that would be inviting that type of thing. So that would be, that would probably be a kind of, uh, one of the few examples of where music could possibly be harmful. And what about the shows that we watch? You know, what about Ghost Nation, Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, um, Ghost Brothers, Ghost this, Ghost that? You know, I mean, it, there's a ton of shows out now. Um, some of them are, you know, production-wise are pretty good. Some of them are absolutely terrible. Um, but they're on, so somebody's watching them. Is just sitting down to watch that as a form of entertainment, is that is that in itself kind of shaky ground for us? You know, that's a, a good question. I don't really see where there would be a lot of harm in watching the show, but if you become obsessed with that type of thing, if you, if you can, there are people who can become completely and totally obsessed with paranormal and paranormal research and, and that type of thing. And at that point, when it gets into that obsession, that's when I think you're, you're going to have more of a problem is, is somebody was obsessed with it. Did have a, a situation where I had a client, that was so obsessed with those shows that when I um, went and did an investigation at their home, she gave me over 500 hours of EVP recording. Oh, Lord. And as she would do more and more recordings, the activity would get worse in the house. So she was more or less feeding the spirit by communicating with it. But I don't think that you're in danger from watching the television show. But if you if you started coming too obsessed with it, and you know, um, then perhaps that would be something that would end up making it to where you might invite that type of activity. Yeah. Well, years ago, I think my kids were probably twelve and thirteen, and. Uh, uh, Ghost Adventures probably was just first within its first year or two, and we had been watching Ghost Hunters with Jason and Grant for uh, a couple of years before that. And it wound up being kind of like a, a family show. We would sit down, you know, whatever night that was that it aired, and we'd all sit there and watch it, and, you know, they'd, they'd break for a commercial and, you know, then come back and show you the reveal and stuff like that. And um, my kids had several friends over and they were all, Hey, let's go ghost hunting. Let's go ghost hunting. And one night I made the mistake of, well, I don't know if it was a mistake, but I said, yeah, we should go. We should go. And then they just would not let it go. You know, I was just <laughs> kind of saying it to pacify them and they, man, they herded me and beat me up about this until I actually took them. And, uh, we went to a small, uh, a small cemetery by Barron Lake. And, uh, it's probably, you know, maybe an acre. It, it, it's it's not big. Um, the dates on the stones are really old, like uh, 1890s and, and stuff like that. And uh, so we went out there and we all had flashlights. And I told them when, before we even walked in the gate to it, I said, there's there's people buried here. There's, you know, we're, we're going to be respectful you're not out here hooting and hollering and carrying on like a bunch of idiots. You know, we're here. I want you to act respectful. And for the most part, they were very much. And I think there were, I think there were six kids altogether plus me. 
and uh, I was walking around with a camcorder in one hand and a, a Kodak um, digital camera in another, and I had a I had a headlamp around my head, and all the kids had flashlights, and my son was walking around with his phone with the voice messages open, and you know doing EVP work, and you know it was initially it was it was a it was a fun night out didn't seem like anything we weren't harming anything we weren't we weren't being disrespectful i didn't feel like i was putting my kids in any kind of harm or anybody else's kids in in the way of harm and i'd taken a picture i'd taken three pictures i I don't remember what show i was watching but they were always saying take three pictures every time you take a picture take three pictures well i was standing in front of two gravestones and uh, they they were identical gravestones they were just they were very small they were white and they were worn to the point where you almost couldn't make out anything on them. And uh, one of them was broken and leaning over against itself. And I took three pictures, and uh, my daughter's friend, she's in the uh, the lower left-hand corner of the picture. You can see her hip in all three pictures. First one was completely clear. Second one, something in it. Third one, completely clear. And it was not necessarily rapid fire, but you know, you click a digital camera, it does its thing. You click it again, you click it again. And, uh, there was a mist that showed up and this was summertime. We were out there. It was, it was not a cool night. Uh, we were, we were kind of sweaty. So it wasn't breath from my, uh, from my mouth. So I, I got this picture and y- you could see something, there but you know i'm looking at a little two inch screen so i figured i'd wait till we got home and uh put it on the computer but then my daughter i hear my daughter and she's like oh my god dad come back here this is it's so cold back here and she had walked up towards the front of the cemetery again and uh, there was a monument it was probably five or six feet tall that was behind two trees and it was uh, located very close to the the front fence of the cemetery and uh i walked back there again i got a camera in both hands and i got my headlamp on my head and i'll be damned i walked between those two trees and if it didn't get colder than shit i i was like i looked at her i was like oh my god it didn't get cold back here a couple other kids came around and i was not really i wasn't looking at the, the monument i was looking at my daughter and my daughter started saying, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. And I, I just I looked at her like, don't be saying that. And she goes, oh, my God, did you see that? Did you see that? I didn't see it because I was looking at her, but I had the camera facing the monument. After we had had enough and we went home and I started putting stuff on the computer to look at, the camcorder caught, I would say it was about the size of a golf ball that just kind of came out of nowhere. It was up at the top of the of the monument. And uh, the monument had four sides, so as it got to the point of it, it was it was like a pyramid. And this this blue light kind of came out of nowhere and it darted around you know in a in a pattern of maybe 6 or 7 inches. It it did a quick curly cue and a maybe like a half a figure eight. And then as it looked like it was going to take off and go in a, in a direction, it just, it just burned out. 
and it was gone. And I, and at that point in the video, my daughter was going, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. So she saw it as it was happening, and I was looking at her, and I didn't see it until we put it on the on the computer. And then uh, I'd gone back to that photograph that I had taken, and I started using whatever was on my uh, my Windows computer and just started changing filters and everything to see if I could make some color pop out more than, than the others. And after messing with it for a while, man, I'm telling you, that mist actually had a shape to it. And as weird as this sounds, that shape, I still have it on my computer. I, I, I could dig it out and email it to you sometime if you want to see it. Looks like somebody sitting. Yeah. Looks like somebody sitting in a chair, with another figure, standing beside that chair, bent at the waist, with their arm, like on their knee, like like their arm extended with their hand on their knee, bent over at the waist. And when I see it, I just get the impression that it's somebody that's being chastised, like somebody sitting in that chair was getting in trouble, so they were, they were getting yelled at, or you know they were learning a lesson or something. It just, it was, it's the oddest damn thing because I mean, you can, you can make out for as much detail as you can see in it. There's even that much more less detail in certain areas. So you can make out the head and you can make out like the squinting of the eyes at the corners of the eyes, but yet other parts of the face are um, not really uh, defined. But I took a, I took and I traced it with a, a, a drawing program and I traced over what I thought I saw. And it, it basically, it's a, it's a, it's a chair, a high back chair with somebody sitting in it and their legs coming out, going down to the ground. And then there's another person that would have been like closer to me in between me and the chair that is bent over at the hip at the waist and looks like their arms are extended down to their knee and you can almost I swear to god you can almost even see like the cuff of the shirt like it was a short sleeve shirt like you can see the cuff of um, where the sleeve ends and it's just the most bizarre thing and and from that point on you know I had some experiences as a as a young man after my dad had passed away that pretty much solidified for me that, that there is something else out there. But after, after, after that, after seeing that photo and seeing that little orb of light doing whatever it was doing, I was like, you know what? I'm still interested in this stuff. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sit on the couch and watch it. I'm it, it's, the investigating isn't for me. I don't think anymore. Um, th- th- there are some dangers. Um, my, uh, one of the last radio shows I did when I uh, was still doing paranormal radio was on the dangers of the paranormal. And there have been cases where spirits have followed people home from investigations or, um, that type of thing, or, you know, they get their, they, they can get the attention of the demonic. So, I could definitely see where you would think that it was better to watch on TV instead of going out into the field. It is probably is safer. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there 
that go out and do the ghost hunting thing after having watched it on television without really knowing what they're doing. And in a few of those situations, I end up, uh, end up seeing some of the cases that I do have to go out and do a, a house blessing or the minor rights. Really? It's people who pretty much open themselves up to it by unsafe paranormal practices. And, you know, so I guess it's some irresponsibility on the part of the people that are going out and doing it. If you don't, if you're not trained and you don't know what you're doing, but from your end of it, from somebody who's been doing it for a long time and uh, you really don't have, you don't have any idea what you're going to run into. You don't know if you're going to run into the ghost of a, a happy go lucky clown. Who's just like, Hey, I was just trying to mess with you or, right. or something more malevolent. Right. And, and just like there's evil people, there are evil spirits. So, I mean, if you, if an, if an evil person dies, they don't suddenly become Casper the friendly ghost. They're uh, still going to be just as evil as they were in life, except now they uh, don't have the restraints. That's so such a bizarre thought. Why do you think, you know, I mean, we're raised to believe that you, you're a good person, you die, you go to heaven. You're a bad person, you die, you go to hell. Why are there these spirits that are in limbo? Why are there so many spirits that can be contacted? I mean, you're not you're not you're not pulling a call from heaven when you're talking to them. You're not pulling a call from hell, are you? They're they're kind of in a in between. Well, the priest that I worked with in Kalamazoo, his theory on why we have earthbound spirits is that they are actually serving their time in purgatory. The Catholic faith believes that there is some, probably in, the, in layman's terms, um, pretty much like a waiting room for heaven. Yeah. And uh, depending on how much you did wrong in your life is how long you're going to have to wait in purgatory. And theory with that was that the reason that we're able to communicate with these spirits is that they haven't made it into heaven or uh, haven't made it to heaven yet, and that they're pretty much stuck in purgatory. And does that make uh, them that more? Not, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was say, that doesn't necessarily explain where you would have the evil spirits at then, because if they were that evil, not particularly likely that they're in purgatory. But uh, by the Catholic faith, you're uh, you're you, you'd be forgiven for any sins. So they may actually that could explain where you had the evil spirits is that they are waiting. They did believe in God and because they believe in God, their soul will be saved, but they have to wait out their uh, time in purgatory. Hmm. Interesting. And do you think that the spirits that are, are stuck in purgatory, the ones that you're able to communicate with or that are trying to um, reach through you, do you think they're more susceptible to, the evil spirits because they're not in heaven and they're not in our realm. They're in, they're in that in between world where demons and, and that sort have free reign. Um, you know, honestly, I, I don't think I ever thought about that, <laughs> but it would seem to me that it would, if I understood your question correctly. Were you saying that you were wondering if, 
the just, evil spirits are easier to communicate with. No, I, I, guess, I guess what I was saying is that if if you have these uh, if you have these spirits that are just a say a normal haunting, not something that's malevolent, but just something that's kind of petering around in somebody's house and once in a while knocking something over, you know, somebody gets a glimpse in a mirror off of the peripheral vision or something, not doing any real harm or anything, but they're just kind of doing their time in purgatory. If, or would you think that they're on the same plane as what these demonic evil spirits are? And would they be more susceptible to being pulled into the evil side of things because they're in that same, that same reality? because they haven't gone to heaven and they're not really here anymore. I wouldn't think that they would be at risk of being harmed by the evil spirits, but I would say more than likely they would be on the same realm. Um, they would be in the same type of existence. So they, they could run into them they, or see them or something. I don't know exactly how that works. I've never been dead. Yeah. Well, technically <laughs> I have, but. Te- technically you have, is that what you said? Yeah, I, I got. I got to ask. <laughs> What's that? I had carbon monoxide poisoning and I had to be revived. Oh, jeez! Well, I'm glad you made so it. Technically, I was dead, but I don't remember it. So, why does it seem you know like in these shows? I'm sure. Before I say that, your opinion of ghost adventures, ghost hunters, when when you see them doing an investigation. Let's let's do away with the overly dramatic. Uh, what was that? Did you hear that? Who's that? Do away with that. But as far as they're constructing their um, their investigations, the tools that they're using, the whole process of how they go about it, pretty similar to what you guys do. Is it seem is it factual or is it uh, is it kind of hokey? I can honestly say I've only ever watched ghost hunters and I, I have not watched any of the other shows um but the first two seasons of ghost hunters i always tell people that if they want to know what it is really like to do a, a paranormal investigation watch the first two seasons of ghost hunters because that is pretty much exactly how investigations work and and like the the amount of the amount of evidence that you get you know we're, we're used to watching these shows and at the end of every show they have a reveal and you know there's always some class a evp and there's a you know a, a shadow figure or there's this or there's that when you when you go and investigate is is evidence really readily that readily available you know like i said i took my kids one time and i got enough stuff in you know an hour and a half or two hours that i was like okay i'm good we don't need to do this anymore. <laughs> I, if I had any questions whatsoever, they've been answered and, and I don't need to do it. Is it easy? Is it that easy? What I encountered or, or do you have to work a lot harder for the evidence that you get? Uh, I think it's more going to depend on where you're at. Um, there have been some places that we've investigated that we get a whole lot of evidence. Um, and there's some, times that we can go and spend like eight hours in an investigation and capture absolutely nothing. Hmm. So it's more shooting. It's a hit and miss. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't know what you're going to run into. And, and sometimes you don't know if you're going to get anything at all. That's, that's probably a pretty good way to put it. 
What's your opinion on, uh, and I keep bringing up his name, uh, I guess maybe it's because of his popularity and uh, currently, but Zach Baggins had a documentary he did uh, a couple of years ago, just came out about a year ago, I think, uh, called The Demon House. Have you seen it? Do you know what I'm talking about? It was a house in uh, Gary, Indiana. I know of the documentary, but I did not watch it. Well, again, you know, overly dramatized. But the one thing that makes me go back and watch that more than once is the overwhelming uh, amount of third-party accounts, uh, police departments, uh, health and welfare departments, um, that were involved with the family and the children that live there makes it makes it a lot more legitimate to me rather than just being something pumped up by, you know, ghost adventures. What makes something a place so inherently evil or inviting to entities that it, it becomes a, a, a source that just seems to linger there be beyond one family, but you know, staying through and and being there after people move out and more people move in. Any ideas on, on, on what causes that? Um, I think they more uh, are tied to the land or perhaps the building. Um, a lot of times it can be practices of people who live there. Uh, say somebody was really into the occult, they may have actually done something um conjuring on there that that made it so that this presence is more or less stuck there um so there's a whole bunch of factors but most of the ones that you find that are more active like that there is some element of somebody that lived in the property practiced the occult so that seems to be a pretty common uh, thread it, yeah. it doesn't just happen. It's it's not something that is... That does seem to be more often than not that somebody has done something that has that invited the spirit to be active there. As I said, the majority of the cases that I've worked have all involved a Ouija board or some variation of that. Doesn't that, seem, up. Doesn't that seem extremely irresponsible for companies to continue to sell those things? Yeah. <laughs> It, it you know, I mean, I, I believe you can buy them at, like, Toys R Us. Yeah, so they even made a Barbie version that was pink. Oh, pink boy. Barbie Ouija board. Um, so there have been a whole bunch of different variations on it. And the only reason it's even sold as a game is actually because the patent for a toy was cheaper than the patent for a tool. So when really? they patented the Ouija board... When they patented the Ouija board, they patented it as a game. You're kidding. Nope, that's that's true. Wow. That's very irresponsible. Because whoever patented it, it had to know what, what its use was. I would imagine so. I mean, it's a pretty old practice. Um, it, they were being used before it was patented, so. No, I, I never, I've never partaken in the use of one. I was at a at a party when I was in my uh, mid-twenties and some girls went into a bedroom and they had one. And even back then, I was I was like, mm, I don't know, you shouldn't be messing with that. I don't remember exactly what happened, but 
you know, there was, they were in there for a half hour, 45 minutes. Then there was all kinds of screaming and then they come running out and, you know, apparently something had happened and, uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't, doesn't seem, it, it's such an interesting subject. You yeah. Know, the, I, uh, the paranormal activity that I mentioned when I said my sister had had a activity in her house growing up, she had that immediately following the use of a Ouija board. So no thanks. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I have used one. It was, I was young enough that I really didn't know any better. And is, is it true that there, you have to do a specific closing at the end of it to, to send them back or to, to close that gateway? Um, that, that is a common belief. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, we're talking about, uh, stuff that is only understood in theory, but, um, my friends that I, I've had several friends that have been, uh, magic practitioners and, and they all firmly believe that you have to close the portal after. Mm, scary stuff. Well, Robert, I think we're an hour and 20 minutes into this thing and, uh, you've been a great guest. I really appreciate you being on the show. You've been very informative. Uh, thanks for taking the time and no problem. Uh, I will be in touch with you again see if we can do another project together. Sounds uh, like a good time. All right. So. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I have too. Until next time, this has been Uncomfortable.